Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. It doesn't take a miracle to be wise with money, but it does take faith and a plan. At Thrivent, we help millions of Christians be wise with money with advice, insurance, banking, investments, and generosity. Visit Thrivent.com. Thrivent, be wise with money. Support for Mentoring Moments comes from Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com forward slash Forbes. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and you're listening to Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action. And we're inviting you to join us every week in my New York City apartment. And sitting across from me from the table that where everything happens in my apartment is Nabia Sayed. And she is by title the Assistant General Counsel of BuzzFeed, but she's so much more than that. She's a free speech lawyer, a woman's rights advocate, and an ardent feminist, and she's interested in the intersection between technology and the First Amendment, which God knows we're just hearing so much about these days, and we will get into that. She's all about women speaking up in media, and one of her jobs is to make sure that they don't get sued for speaking up, and we appreciate you so much, so much for doing that for us. She's a Forbes 30 under 30, a 40 under 40 rising star by the New York Law Journal, and she was named the First Amendment Fellow at the New York Times. She's a graduate of John Hopkins from Yale Law School and Oxford University, which she attended as a Marshall Scholar. Okay, so if that's not intimidating enough, she's on all these lists, she has this great education, and she's a non-resident fellow at both Stanford Law School and Yale Law School. And, 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 she co-founded Drone U an educational platform explaining drone integration into civilian airspace. And here's the best part. She's only 31. So, Navia, welcome. Welcome to the table. Thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here today. Well, it's so great. And we have to do a shout out to Tala Hadavi for introducing us. Oh, she's a star. She is, she is a star. She was one of the best students I had in my class. And that, what class is that? There's a Columbia? What yes, is the class? Yes, so I was teaching a media law course at Columbia Journalism School, basically equipping journalists to protect themselves so they don't get sued in case they don't have a lawyer right. around. So we, they don't have to call you. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Making so, my life easier. So some of you have met Tala. She's been on the podcast a few <laughs> times as our takeaway guest. Uh, so for those of you who have met her, Tala made the introduction. And I love to tell those stories because I think as older women, we sometimes think that when we mentor someone that is always top down. And so many of the great things in my life have come from the young women in my life, from sharing their stories, but also connecting me to great women of all ages. So I always want to make that point. So thanks to Tala and I'm going to bet she's listening. So here's my mentoring moment. We'll kick it off with my mentoring moment. The other day I was talking to a woman, Sherry. She's 24 years old. And she was saying that she has this great company. It's a marketing company. She's doing really well. She has a lot of big name clients. But now she needs to find an investor. And she said to me, can you give me some advice about what I should do to find an investor? 
And I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm the best person to tell you how the nuts and bolts of what you're asking, like who you should go to, what you, but I'm going to give you some big advice that I think will change everything you do. That's even better than that nuts and bolts advice. I was talking a few years ago to a really high powered investor. And he said to me that although he wants entrepreneurs to have a business plan and go through that process, he never even looks at them. That what he cares about is their story. He makes his decisions on whether or not he wants to be a part of their story. Wow. That's what I said. Yeah. And this guy's a big time investor. And his point was many times we don't know if this company is going to work out, if it's not going to work out. The numbers on, I want you to go through that process of doing the business plan so you mm-hmm. thought it through, you've given it your best shot. But I can't bank on that. But I can bank on you, on who I see is showing up here. And I thought that was huge. And then I thought, and I never, I never connected the dots until I was talking to Sherry the other day. And I said, when I was 24, which, is, which was a coincidence because she's 24, I was hired to be a junior lobbyist. Now, the crazy part about this was... I had absolutely no experience on Capitol Hill. I did. I wasn't really sure what a junior lobbyist really was. I mean, my dad was president of school board when I grew up. But other than that, I've not been involved in politics at all. I wasn't quite sure where Capitol Hill even was, other than I went to a few bars there. <laughs> I wasn't like quite sure how I would find my way to work. But how the story goes is... I moved to D.C. Now, I'm going to go fast forward. I'm going to tell you why the guy hired me and then the story of how this happened. So I run into Don, who was the guy who hired me to be the junior lobbyist, about 20 years after. I was there for about two years. And we were laughing. We were at Clinton's inaugural, one of the one of his balls. And we ran into each other. And I, so we were talking about you know 20 years ago. And I said, I have a question. Why did you ever hire me? I mean, I had no experience. And he said, it's because of you and your stories. And I'm not, you can't make this shit up, right? I mean, and I didn't even dawn on me until the other day when I was like connecting these dots. And I was like, what was the story? I can't even remember what story. And he was like, well, I don't remember it, but I will tell you what I remember. The big picture of the story was You grew up in this small little town outside of Pittsburgh. You found your way to D.C. You came to D.C. with enough money to pay your rent. You didn't have a job. You got a job within five days of arriving here, and you were a secretary. And your boss came out and said to you one day, you're more talented than this, and you need to go find a job that is different than being, and we were called secretaries, then we weren't even personal assistants, right? And he said, you need to find something that plays into your talents. Now, the funny part is one of the reasons my boss said that was I was a lousy secretary. (laughs) So I think he was being nice and like saying, you have more talent. I think he was optimistic that I must have talent because it wasn't doing that job. And he said, and so I thought, number one, there was something about you and your energy that I thought, when you make your mind up to do something, you'll get it done. And I can teach you the skills that you need to be the junior lobbyist, but I can't teach you to be that person that has that energy and will get things done. We all need to create our lives, lives that have stories, the lives that have stories that are worth telling. And we all can do it, no matter who we are, no matter how big our platforms are, no matter what you're doing, whether you're working for a big company, you're working on your own, you're not working for pay, whatever it is, 
just create stories that are worth telling and then share your stories because my life is filled with great things happening because I shared a story and my life is filled with great things happening to me because people shared their stories with me. So that's my mentoring moment. I love that. Well, thank you. So true. I mean, storytelling is the backbone of journalism. It's the backbone of being a good lawyer, I think, too, telling stories about how we organize the world and what's right and just and fair. Even the story itself and the take home from that story is so meaningful to me. Well, thank you. Are there times when you've had like a story that's impacted you or your story has impacted someone else that you can think of? You know, so often when reporters are working on things, it's the story behind why they're doing it or what moves them that I think sort of gets me up in the morning. Because my role is to make, as you summarize, is to make sure they don't get sued. So much of what I do is making the architecture available for people to tell their own stories and not be punished for it in a court of law. It's enabling them to tell the truth. And there's a story just recently that someone published on BuzzFeed, Sari Yassin wrote this story about wearing the hijab when she was young and then taking it off. And in, in this moment, hearing the stories that humanize Muslims, that humanize women, that humanize these people is something that has political power, right? You can see that someone puts a story like that out in the world and then responds. That's the type of thing that keeps me going. That's why I do what I do. And so is there like a story that someone's told you or a story that you've shared with someone that has really changed your life? Yes. So speaking of our mid-20s, as you did in your mentoring moment, I'm 25. I've decided for some unknown reason that I'm going to go to more law school after I finish law school in the U.S. So I'm at Oxford. I'm supposed to be writing this great thesis, and my thesis advisor doesn't think it's so great. And it's a little conversation, but it sends me into this mid-20s existential crisis of why am I studying media law? What's so interesting about this? Why did I even pick this? I've chosen something so narrow. I have so many other interests. I remember sitting cross-legged on my bed and my dearest friend at Oxford, who's now a journalist herself, is sitting on my bed too, trying to you know, work through what's going on. And I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do this. I'm sitting an ocean across from everything that I know. My friends are clerking for the Supreme Court. They're at law firms and I'm deciding what I should write a paper about. What am I doing? doing here? And she looks at me and I'm a real big believer in sort of the advice that your friends give you, your close friends in particular, because I think good close friends don't lie to you. And she's like, you know, you keep saying, why am I doing this? What if I don't like it? I want to be more well-rounded. There's so much that I like. And she's like, sometimes you have to be well-rounded and sometimes it's times to get pointy get pointy. You can't be well-rounded anymore. You have to pick a thing and you have to do it. There was no mincing words. There was no nothing. She just gave me that sort of shot of clarity in the moment saying, you need to do this now. She's like, pick a topic, start writing. The rest of your life will unfold, but you just have to decide. And the number of times I have used exactly that same language, like, yeah, it's good to be well-rounded. Now you got to get pointy. You have to make choices has been so many with so many of my friends, whether they're deciding whether to leave a law firm, whether they're choosing new area of the law, whether they're trying to decide if they want to go back to school and do something else entirely, if they're trying to decide where to live or where to go or what to do, what city to be in. It's good to have opportunities and it's good to have all the options, but sometimes you got to make choices. And so there's something about 
you know, those statements, those little little snippets of advice that stay with you and become almost like memes, right? Someone says it to you, I say it to someone else, I must have said it like a hundred times to a hundred different friends now. And well, it's memorable. It's, but let's talk about that because I think getting pointy is difficult. Yeah, definitely. Especially now when there's so many opportunities in front of everyone. Absolutely. Right, to pick from. And it's like, well, I can dabble in this and I can do a little bit of this and then I'll have a side hustle. So how did you get point? How did you like say, okay, it's great to say I'm going to, but then what do you do to get there? I think to get there, you have to just focus on the moment you're in, which is so hard to do because our minds can fast forward to the future immediately. And you have to think as I sit here in my chair, or cross-legged on my bed in Oxford, what is it that I like right now? Not tomorrow, not next week, not in a month. What do I like right now? What can I not stop learning about? What can I not stop thinking about? And then you just have to dive headfirst into it and you have to give it everything you have. And I think one reason that at least I felt hesitation doing that is, well, what if I change my mind in a month or a year or whatever? And you have to just trust that when you jump headlong into something, you're building the skills of how you jump, how you learn, what you process. And that will always carry you. In a, in a year, if you decide to jump to something else, knowing how to jump, knowing how to have the muscle memory of just going all in is going to be the thing that serves you, not the substance of, of what it is. Um, if you pick up and move to a whole new city and you live there, guess what? In that first move, you learned how to move right? You learned how, and it's, I think thinking about the, how we do things is more important than the, what, even though the, what is what gets shared on Facebook and Instagram and sort of put into pictures and whatever, you have to think about the, how you build the hows of your life. I find so many times young people, young women are so afraid to get pointy because you're making a commitment. As you just said, you're thinking that you're making this commitment like forever. If I do this, this is forever. And I can't give up on doing that, that you can give up. That's number one. But do you find like your students at Columbia as, and as educated as you are that I feel like women, no matter where they're at, are going through this, whether you're highly educated, whether you've had all these opportunities or you haven't, there's still that insecurity and fear that is underlying in all of us. Uh, yeah, I think it's always there. And I think this is why I believe so much in peer mentorship, right? Having your friends around you is because you can, you have to just try to push that fear away, but sometimes it seeps back in, right? And I think you just have to talk about it. You have to turn to your friends who love you or whoever's in that sort of brain trust that you build to say, okay, this is my fear that I have. What's going to happen? And I have a different friend who I consider part of my brain trust who always says, okay, you're afraid of this. Walk it out. Like what's actually going to happen? What's the worst that will happen? What's the worst? And what's the best? Yeah. She's like, walk me through it. I'm like, okay, well, if I live in New York City, then I'm far away from my family that's in California. She's like, okay, well, if something happens, then you'll move to California. Oh, okay. That's easy. If I, if I take this job, there's this other job that I don't know, maybe this one won't lead to that one. She's like, okay, why? And sometimes when you really have to spell out the fears and you're out, like tell the story of your fear and what it leads to and where it is, you realize it's not that scary after all. I think that fear, the uncertainty that's lurking is just the fear of the unknown often, right? It's this baseline fear. When we say we can't get pointy because there may be something else that we can't define that's lurking out there. And that's, 
it's no way to live. And, but you have to remember that you don't know how to predict the future. You don't know. So don't give the unknown more power than the known thing that's in your hands. That is critical. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, giving people power, giving away your power, but it's also giving the unknown your power, right? Giving, giving that your energy in and everything you've got to something that you have no control over anyway. Exactly. And who knows what's going to happen next, but that's hard. I mean, that's really hard. Are there things that scare you? You know, in this political moment that we're in, there are a lot of things that scare me for myself, my loved ones, the people I represent, the people I know and care about and in, in the places that I live and visit. And I think for a lot of people in the political moment we're in, uncertainty is the name of the game and uncertainty is the thing that gives us fear. Uncertainty is the thing that keeps me up at night. I'm a free speech lawyer. I represent journalists and journalists have been declared to be the enemy by our president. And it can be frightening to not know how to answer people who say, well, should I leave the country to go to a wedding? outside of the country, if there's going to be an immigration ban, if there's going to be this or that. It's hard to advise people. And I do live in fear of giving the bad advice, giving wrong advice in such a rapidly changing moment of not knowing how to react in moments of emergency and crises, which we're seeing more and more. But like in moments of fear before, you just have to push it out of your mind. And I think be honest and transparent saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I can give you this advice now, today, as we sit here, as soon as it changes, I will let you know. And so much of how I deal with the uncertainty is naming it and then keeping my eyes open for what might change. And that process of, you know, I'm learning everything I can learn, doing everything I can do. If something changes, well, it wasn't my capacity to know, right? right? I did everything I could in that moment. And if even then it doesn't go the way you want, that's life. Um, and so I think in a weird way, working hard and knowing that I'm working helps take away the uncertainty because at least working is a process you can control. Do you find that some people, because you are young, is that, that, is that getting your way of people thinking that you're giving them the best advice? It's like, but is, do you ever feel or hear people say, but she's only 31? Oh yeah. Yeah. That happens all the time. Right. And I have to and say, if anybody thinks that about her, it's completely wrong. She is so together. <laughs> I mean, she is so together. I'd put my life in your hands. <laughs> Well, you don't see the coffee I spilled on myself this morning, but um, of course I hear that. I've heard that for a really long time. And I'll say it's one reason I've been so drawn to areas like the intersection of technology and the First Amendment, because no one's been studying machine learning for 50 years. I guess some people have, but the law around it, that sort of thing, these things are new and they're rapidly developing. And so what they require is not, I've done this for 50 years, but agility of thinking and the ability to understand how very different things fit together, right? And that's not necessarily tied to years of practice. There are still definitely things that are tied to years of practice. And I'll say this is, I think, why just putting in all of the work that you can is the only way I know how to deal with it. Like, yeah, I don't have the year, I don't have 70 years of knowledge in me. Whenever I meet people who do, I want to soak up everything they can offer. I'm open to it because that's the only way to learn. And in the other time that I have, I will be reading and listening and finding and seeking things out. And even then, I know there's things I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. But I'm comfortable that I am trying to know all that I can in the time that I have. There are definitely issues that come up where I'm like, yep, bigger than my pay grade. I do not know how to deal with this. 
And, uh, and I think that's what's valuable also about in this process of learning, learning your own limits. Like I, knowing what you don't know and being very okay saying, I don't know that I'm going to ask someone else because I can't at 31 know everything. It would be insane to think that I could, but I know what I know really deep. And I know what I don't know pretty well. And there's a lot of smart people that I reach out to when that's the case. And that goes back to the brain trust idea. Right. And being able to say, I don't know yeah, is, is really powerful for, for your own self, as well as learning what you don't know. Because if you act that, if you're in that role of acting, like I know everything, I can answer everything, you're never going to learn. And I think it's great that you're able to know your limitations, know what you do well and have the confidence in yourself, where I think a lot of people don't have that confidence, which is not arrogance or cockiness. It's the confidence of knowing what you know. It is not easy to say, I don't know. It gets better with time. I have never said I don't know more times than I did in law school, surrounded by so many brilliant people who had known for a very long time that they wanted to be lawyers. They wanted to clerk on the Supreme Court or be a district attorney. And I got to law school and I thought that I knew what I wanted to do. It turns out it wasn't really an area of the law. I got there to study international development law, not really a thing. And so I get to law school and everyone's, what do you want to do? And well, I, I, I don't know. And you get into classes and uh, you're with brilliant people taught by brilliant professors. And they ask you questions because you get cold called in these classes. And I sometimes had to say, I don't know. And you learn, right? It's a, And it's uncomfortable. Your skin feels prickly the first few times you say, I don't know. And I'm not going to lie. There's times I remember my first year of law school, constitutional law, taught by a brilliant man named Kenji Yoshino. And I'd been talking to him at office hours beforehand uh, about, you know, drug sentencing in Baltimore, a thing I'd cared about because I had lived in Baltimore for college. And I had all these thoughts about it. And the next day we're in class and that issue comes up. And he calls on me because we had just talked about it. He knows I have thoughts. And in that moment, I just, I see how big the class is. I know how smart they are. I see him standing at the front and I just blank, totally blank. And I say, I don't know. Can I phone a friend? You're like on a game show. Exactly. I just <laughs> can I phone panic. a friend. He did not my ask final me, answer is. Exactly. He hadn't asked me a yes or no question. He had asked me my thoughts on something to which I had answered, I don't know. Can I phone a friend? And then I point at someone else and say, she knows. I just melted down. That's priceless. In that moment. Total meltdown. And then, you know, I was like, well, uh, that happened now saying, uh, um, I'm not sure. It seems pretty easy compared to my who wants to be a millionaire meltdown right. <laughs> that I had. And sometimes you have to fall on your face to realize that falling isn't so bad, right? Yes. And, uh, and having that happen to me in my first year of law school in front of everybody sort of made it easier to say, I don't know. And then I'd go to like lectures about stuff, securities litigation. I don't know anything about that. And I would ask a question, say, you know, I don't know, but here's my question. And once you start exercising, I don't know, out of your mouth, it's so liberating. It really it's is. It's so liberating. And then you find out all kinds of stuff. And people will help you. Yeah. We've talked about this in the podcast. People will help you and tell you, if you ask and say, I don't know, but here's what I need, people will come and say, okay, I can help you with that. Or I can help you with this. I can't help you with that. Absolutely. If you want $6 million, I may not have that. <laughs> but what else can I help you with that... 
Yeah, people people do like helping. Not everyone, but right. enough. The majority of people. Majority if you're, if you're of hanging people. out with the right people, they exactly. do. That's the, exactly. That, that group of people, they do. That's exactly the case. And and just once you get used to it, you, who knows the stories you hear, right? Going right. back to stories, who knows what you, you'll find out? Because when you – saying I don't know creates a space. It's a, a space of what you – like, here's an empty space. Can someone fill it? And then they'll give you stories. They'll give you knowledge. They'll give you something else. And then you're all the richer for it. Exactly. And then and you get to go on your way. It is not a thing to be afraid of. It's a thing that's adventure in your day. I think that is wonderful, wonderful advice. And I think the more we do it, we're all better off for it because we're we're being vulnerable. And I think that is the big thing. And being vulnerable and saying, I don't know, but I can't know everything. I just can't not, I can't, especially in this day and age. I can't know. I mean, there's so much media coming at us. You may have read something that I haven't read. And now if you say something like, have you read that? I'm like, no, I missed that because I can't get it all. And speaking of media, I have to hear your thoughts. I can kind of guess what they are about <laughs> the First Amendment and silencing the media. We are living through some interesting times. When it comes to silencing the media, I don't think any of us in this country have seen sort of the full frontal assault that we see tweeted at us, usually at six o'clock in the morning, or disseminated through these press conferences. I think it's important to step back and realize in the hubbub of everything that's happening so quickly, we are under, we're seeing a very notable change in the media. I think by virtue of saying that some people are bad or fake news or sad or the enemy of the state, that we're seeing power identify the people they want to tell their stories and power saying we don't like people who decide to speak against us. And that is the opposite of what media is supposed to do. Media is supposed to speak truth to power. It's supposed to sting. It's supposed to cut a little. It's supposed to be hard. That's the idea of the fourth estate, the idea of media in this country has been that it's going to be a check on power, not a friend to you. And the conception of media in this moment that is being articulated from the highest office in the land is you're basically our mouthpiece. We like you if you're our PR agency. And that is a radical shift that we've seen elsewhere in the world, but not here. The good thing is that I think for a lot of people in journalism who are practicing journalism, and I say this from everyone from the student journalist who's going to the local town hall to report on something to the independent journalist who's trying to uncover whether there's, you know, lead in the water in the town they're in to the people at the New York Times and BuzzFeed and all these institutions. There is a moral clarity. We have a responsibility to do our jobs. I think in previous times there's a, well, you know, what are the clicks here? Is there a clickbait? You know, we're all in this mediascape. We're commenting on everything, blah, blah, blah. I think there is a, a lens on what's happening right now that gives it some clarity. There is someone who says that you should not do your jobs in the way you understand how to do your jobs. And they're pushing back. As media lawyers, I think there's this real call to stand up. I think as for lawyers in general, this idea that there is the rule of law, there is process, there is a system. There's a First Amendment. Right. It's the first of the amendments. You don't even have to read that long from that far. It's right there. It's, you know, protecting your speech, protecting your religion, protecting your right to petition your representatives, the right to assemble, the right to protest. And so in so many ways around us, we're seeing people flex that first amendment and we're exploring what the contours of it 
should look like in this digital age. I also think it's making people focus on problems that have sort of always lurked there, but we haven't known how to deal with, and now there's an urgency. So one that I have spent a lot of time thinking about, and I don't have a solution that's satisfying, is the idea of hate speech and this sort of terrible speech that we see on these online platforms. Now, I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I want people to exercise their free speech, even if I don't like it. Even if I, that I will protect things, even if I don't like them. And yet some of what we see is, you know, this isn't just speech going into the void. It's creating different worlds of facts that it's lies. It's not true. It's shaping narratives that have real consequences for the everyday. And so what do you do with that kind of speech, right? What do you do when that speech actually silences people? And I see this with reporters and other journalists that I know who say, you know, I was going to post this thing on Twitter, but I don't want the abuse. We were talking about that earlier. I hear this a lot from young female journalists. Yeah. It's like, and, or I don't want him to come after me and that could hurt my job. There's so much fear going on. Yeah. And what that fear does is that it silences voices that we need to speak right now right? We need them to speak up and they're opting out because the cost of participation is so high and I don't blame them. And so when I think about free speech, you know, part of my philosophy is making sure all the voices are heard. Now we have some voices that are drowning out voices that are really valuable. What do we do? And some of that is figuring out, you know, the right tweaks to the platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Some of it is thinking about whether there is space for the law here and, and how do we identify the difference between someone just saying, yeah, I don't like you versus I'm going to come to your house and kill you and why the law should really protect that latter portion of it shouldn't in my view, but we're sort of thinking through these questions. And I just think back, I was searching through my email for something and someone had asked me a question about harassment on Twitter like two years ago. And uh, it was actually part of a group of people on this chain. And, and someone said, you know, it's just part of the game. We just have to deal with it. You just have, have to absorb it. But I think the moment we're in now when we realize that the stakes are high for just saying, yeah, yeah, it happens. We're primed to find solutions. In all of this crisis, I think there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of choices that will come out of it. And I'm excited for those, to be honest. Um, a little nervous, but mostly excited. I think it's just such difficult times right now of knowing what is real. I, I don't believe that the major media companies are telling lies. So I want to believe that that is real. And I will believe that until I'm until someone proves that that's not mm-hmm. real. But I, you just don't know what is real anymore that when you hear the president speak and he says one thing and someone else says another thing. And what concerns me is when something really important happens, like if there is a war or something major is going on, the belief system has been broken down so much on who who's believing what is real. And that I think is when you look back in history, a pretty dangerous time, right? Because you have people under the banner of one flag who do not live in the same reality, which has always been true by virtue of like different economic circumstances, different views of the world, whatever. But if we can't even agree on what the basic facts are, which is the value of journalism, can't agree on the basic facts, how are we going to work through them? The name of the game for me is building trust. A lot of these institutions have to get trust in places that are opting 
to misplace their trust for others. How to do that, I think, is the million dollar question. And at least at BuzzFeed, one way we've approached this question, and folks at BuzzFeed have spoken pretty openly about this, is being pretty radical and transparent about what we're doing, saying, hey, we're covering these stories because we think it's important. Here's part of our process. Here's the step-by-step. And sort of letting people in, drawing them into the process to let them see how it works. And if you can see how the sausage is made, maybe you'll trust the sausage. Maybe, right? Right. right. Maybe not, but maybe. Well, being authentic is always a good idea. Yes. And, and, you know, rather than uh, saying, well, this truth was developed behind this black curtain and here delivered to you as if it's from Oz, right? we're letting people in and, and letting them see it and letting them comment on it in the comment section and engage and, and talk about it. And I think that has to be at least part of the way to do this is to let people in and let people also help you define what the facts and the reality can be, but also saying, guys, facts aren't just a thing you decide to be true. There's a process of how we reach truth and, you know, involves talking to a lot of people and figuring out what's going on and checking basic facts. And, you know, if you're going to say that a terrorist attack happened in Bowling Green, well, you can't just make that stuff up. Right. These are real things. They have consequences. And, you know, that's going to be the job that we do in the next few years. You have your work cut out for you. I'm just so glad that you're here (laughs) because you're a very busy woman. You're very busy. Yeah, we're not going to be bored. That is for sure. Is there anything that we haven't touched on about the First Amendment and silencing the media that you want to make sure you say before we go on to our next topic? It's important not to become totally pessimistic, right? Other nations have gone through these types of moments. Our own. There were yellow journalism and tabloids in the 1920s and 30s were everywhere. In fact, how many of us remember going to the supermarket, seeing the National Enquirer say, like, aliens landed in Tucson, blah, right, blah, we blah. We don't want to go back. We, we don't, don't want to go, go back. back. We don't want to go back. None of us want to go back. I guess some of us do want to go right, back. Right. But, uh, but you know, we've seen this type of misinformation injected in the sphere before, and we've gotten over it. Yes. And we're seeing it now. And what this is is a period of correction, not a period of, oh, no, it's over. Let's lie down and stop fighting. Yes, and, I believe that 100%. And I just want to make sure. It's so important to me that everyone who's horrified by this moment, horrified by what's happening, if you think that your Facebook friend who believes in conspiracy theories is wrong, don't just mute their posts, right? Reach out and say, hey, you know, the Bowling Green massacre did not in fact happen. Let's talk, right? There's actually space for everyone in this environment to reach out and start reaching towards the truth. And I think the only way we're going to come up with a solution is if everyone plays a part. Yes. And I, and I think, and that is a huge piece of it, that whether we agree with our neighbor or don't agree with our neighbor, that we're talking to our neighbor a hundred percent, and that we're opening up that conversation and we're not going in closed minded, but that's really difficult for a lot of people right now to be able to get over those because those differences are so much more than political. And for many people right now, that it's hard to bring down those barriers. But if we can do that, then we're all going to be much better off because we don't have to go to the other side, whichever side we're on, but we we can understand each other a little better and hopefully a solution comes from the understanding. Absolutely. I'll say I spent some time over the last year going to Trump rallies and the Republican National Convention all for work. And there had been coverage of the types of people that go to these protests, just as there has been coverage of the people who went to, you know, Hillary Clinton rallies. And I so desperately just wanted to 
understand with my own eyes. So I would walk up to people, often ones had pretty atrocious signs, but sometimes whoever was nearby. And I would just say, I'm a Pakistani American Muslim woman born to immigrants. And my husband is from Ghana. What are your thoughts? Just lay it all out on the table. Person who's holding up an Islamophobic, anti-Muslim, anti-humans sign. And let's talk. And you're very brave. You know, or reckless, but <laughs> we'll go with brave. We'll, we'll go, go with, with brave. brave. Um, and, you know, the, the first few times I did this, I thought maybe there was a chance I might be slapped in the face or like spit on or something. And uh, that's not, neither of those things ever happened. Some, there's a little yelling once in a while, but a lot of people sort of looked, some of them looked like they'd just seen an alien, right? Or just seen a ghost. They'd be like, what? You're what? And I'm like, just ask me your questions. I don't know if you've ever met anyone like me before. I haven't met anyone who would hold a sign like that before. So let's talk. And I'm not going to say that I, you know, use my magical powers of persuasion to persuade them in a day, but at least I was a human being to them. Right. So maybe the next time they write their sign, they're like, you know, I can't say I've never met someone like that before. I also got to understand them a little bit People have all kinds of reasons to be at those protests, those rallies or whatever, but at least we started the process. And it also gives you a little, you know, the first time you say something like that and someone doesn't spit on you, you're like, okay, I can do it the right. next time and the next time and the next time. It makes it easier. It all I, makes it easier. I think that's great. I think that's great. And as I said, I think you're brave, which is a good <laughs> thing. I don't think it's reckless, but I think it's brave. But I think you, we need to be brave and we need to pick the times when to be brave. I think there are sometimes it can be reckless. Yeah. Like you might not want to say that to somebody on the subway. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> but when you're in a safer environment, you're putting yourself in a safety zone to be able to have those conversations. Yeah. And I think everyone has to pick their own way of doing it, right? There's some people who don't want to have a physical conversation. So you just, you know, your high school friend who's posting something on Facebook you don't agree with, that can be your engagement. If you feel comfortable talking to strangers, which I'm too comfortable talking to strangers, then that can be, you know, a thing that I do. And I think everyone just has to figure out what's the little piece that's in their comfort zone that they're going to do and just do it. And that'll get us far. So Nabia, we're going to do, I'm done with that. But first, I want to thank Braintree for sponsoring Mentoring Moments. You know, a lot of businesses, in fact, too many businesses, think of payments as a mechanical function, that it just needs to work. But your payment solution can be an engine for growth. It can help up your conversion rates. It can help tap you into market growth. It can help ease security concerns that are limiting your customer spending. And payments can be a way to provide new experience to your customers. So you want to grow your business? Rethink your payments. Braintree, rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com forward slash Forbes. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly 1 million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Garnishing your ham with pineapple? Pair it with a delicious Chardonnay to make their taste buds swirl. Deviled eggs are even better when paired with a light, dry wine like a bubbly Prosecco or a Pinot Grigio. 
For me, nothing beats recommending a great wine. And with such an extensive selection, I can help you find the perfect one in your budget. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Now back to Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari. So I'll start off with something I'm done with, which okay. is perfect, because as you were talking, because I've thought about what am I done with, and what I'm done with is thinking there's only one answer to a dream, a question, a problem, whatever you're looking for the answer. And it really has happened a lot on Mentoring Moments, because we've done over 30 shows, and you're getting a lot of different women with different experiences, and you may hear one woman say, only focus on three projects. Never focus on more than three. It distracts you. And somebody else will come on and say, my success came because I juggled 10 different things. Because that way, if one doesn't work out, I have many more to go back on. And just as a side note, and it's a long story, but years ago, I had a TV show that Dick Clark was optioning. Mm. And he gave me some advice that made him successful. He worked on three projects always at the same time because three for him gave him the safety net. If one didn't happen, you had a chance with the other two. But anyway, but so you look at that. You look at women will say money is power. And other women will say, well, power is really doing what you love to do. And as long as I'm making enough money, I don't need any more. And for each woman, her answer is her answer and right for her. And that's the thing that I think we need to get away from is, just as you were saying, you may not feel comfortable, somebody else may not feel comfortable speaking to strangers as you're comfortable. That doesn't mean they should do that. Just like if I think that working on 10 projects is too much, it doesn't mean I should do it. But it's taking these stories and these learnings and then for us to figure out what works for us. Not always comfortable for us. Sometimes putting us in the non-comfort zone, right? But what works for us? I think it's so important. It's um, a couple of years back, I had to do a salary negotiation and I had a couple of girlfriends that were also, you know, getting into new jobs. They had to do the same thing. So we all decided to confab together, to get together in an apartment and, and talk about what we had learned and what the strategies were and how we were going to do it. And we gather everything we could find on the internet. And of course, the knowledge that we've gathered from asking people questions. And it felt like there was just, you know, you went in and you put your hand on the table and you said, I'm worth this. And let me just tell you. And and you advocate a certain way. And I had a girlfriend who said, well, I just, that's not me. I would never do that. We had this whole debate amongst us about, you know, how do we do this? How should one do it? And it became clear, actually, in getting together and sharing this information, that In something as, you know, everyone goes through a salary negotiation, there are a thousand different strategies of how to do this. And for her, the way she felt the most comfortable was walking in saying, I have done all of this very extensive research. I know exactly where I fit. And this is uh, what I think is fair, right? The language of fairness based on research, not plucking out of thin air. I had another friend who decided to go in and say, I know what I'm worth. And she, you know, importantly, she was transitioning from a job where she had not made a lot to a job that had the potential. So she couldn't say, this is market, this is this, this is what I had. She had, she needed to use a different argument, but she felt emboldened to walk in, sit down, say, this is my number, that or bust. I felt comfortable with the person I was negotiating with to say, this is what I think I need to get to. This is what makes sense for me. This is what I think is right for me forget everything in the past. And what was so wonderful, we, we joke about this now some years later, that everyone chose totally different strategies. 
And everyone got to where they needed to be. Also, there's no one in that group that was like, oh man, I got screwed. Everyone got there, but totally different strategies employed. And just in something that simple that we all go through, that's so universal, you're going to be the most authentic if you do the thing that feels right to you, but you have to do the work to figure out what that is. Yes. And that's labor, right? It's work to figure out what is right for you? Who are you? And how do you fill out your own skin? Yes. And listening to the other stories and taking it in and saying, that's good advice, but it's not me. Right. Yeah. And that's good advice. And that's good advice. And being you and taking the best of the advice and figuring out what works for you, that there's, there just isn't that magic answer. So going back to the beginning of the podcast to when Sherry said to me, you know, tell me how to go get an investor. First of all, I was able to say, I don't know because I don't understand your market enough Mm -hmm. to tell you who you should be going to, what you should be doing, but I can give you this piece of advice. But there is no wrong or right answer to those questions. You can go ask 10 million investors and they're all going to give you different advice on why they do things. Some people may say, I don't care about the story. I care about what the bottom Mm -hmm. line is, right? So what are you, about you, what are you done with? I'm done with waiting. Back in November, there was a lot of like, well, let's wait and see how this shakes out. Let's wait to understand what's going to happen here. And I think it's fine for some people to be the waiters and the watchers and the from the wings people. But there's so much at stake these days in so many different spaces that waiting to figure out how you can participate is that, that time lost. You'll never get back. Yes. Find a way to do something. And it's not only in terms of political engagement. It's if there's a company you've always wanted to start, don't wait until all the stars are aligned. That doesn't mean you start it tomorrow and like get a trademark for it. It just means that like maybe you have a Google document and you write a couple ideas in there. Don't wait to live out everything that you want. That doesn't mean that timing doesn't matter. Timing does matter. But waiting on your dreams, waiting on your plans, waiting until everything aligns properly is just, it's never going to be that perfect. And I feel like every great thing that's happened in my career, I've been very, very lucky for the past some years. It hasn't come at the right time or in the right way. You just kind of fall into it. It's inconvenient. And so waiting for the right thing has never been how my life has worked. You don't have to jump in the same way, but waiting just can't be the answer. Because life will never be, whether it's waiting for having children, which is always the biggie, right? I want to have my job. I want to have my career. I want to have this. I want to have the perfect house. I want to have a car. Whatever it is you want. I want to have four horses. Whatever (laughs) it is, you will never align to be perfectly right. And so you just have to make the decision what you want. And, you know, if you're having a child, can you afford to take care of a child is always a big win for me, right? right? Because you are responsible for another human being. And if you want a dog, whatever you're responsible Mm -hmm. for, can you take care of, of that person or that animal? And then just keep going for it. That you just have to, if it's something you want, make it happen. And the other pieces yeah. will happen. Your house may not be perfect. You know what? Your baby's going to be fine. If you have a baby <laughs> and you don't have the perfect house, it doesn't know. He or yeah. she doesn't know. <laughs> My doorman said the other day his wife's pregnant with yeah. twins. And he said, and, you know, we don't have space for two cribs. But I'm like, why do we need cribs? Why can't we take drawers out of the dresser and put blankets? The babies aren't going to know. And when you think about it, that's what when I was a baby, that's what we did. I was, Makes sense. We had drawers. You didn't put, you didn't close them in the closet. <laughs> But my mom took the drawers out of the cabinet. They lined them with blankets Mm -hmm. and stuff and put them on the floor. Yeah, people were fine. And that's how we slept. And it was somehow, I I want to think I turned out okay. (laughs) 
maybe that maybe that is the reason for why I am the way I am. No, but, but it's but it really it's never the exact right time. Yeah, and I think waiting for everything to be perfect presumes that you even know what perfect is. Yes, right. And that it's possible. It's not. And I just, I think one, it's, there's something very liberating about saying perfect isn't going to happen. Perfect's not a thing. So let me just figure out how to do it my own way. And don't wait to figure it out, I guess is, is the thing. You can wait for timing. Okay. But don't wait to start at least doing something towards whatever the goal is. Right. And you know what? I hope that I'm alive when you're 60. So I'll be 93. There's a good opportunity. There's a good mm-hmm. chance because my mom is 90 and she's kicking. Oh, good. I'm glad to yeah, hear it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so I've got to get my grandmother died yeah. at 104. So because I want to talk to you when you're like 60. I want to <laughs> keep the conversation going. I don't want to wait 30 years because you're so smart. Oh, I don't know so about you that. You are. You are. You're so together. <laughs> and now we'll go into takeaways, which is I've crowdsourced questions from fans and friends oh, exciting. to see what is one question that they've, they've had many, um, as you know, because you saw it on Twitter. And for some reason, people don't tweet them to me. They email them to me. So everyone, if you get, if you see it on Twitter, just tweet the question that you want. It's a whole lot easier that way. Um, but one of them was, how did you get to have such a great job at such a young age? So what is it about you? Oh, I don't know if it's anything about me, but I think going back to not waiting too much, if there's, if there's something I like, I will throw myself into it. Now that doesn't mean I have moments of doubt, hence the get pointy advice from my friend, but I will try to understand it. And I think that served me really well. So, you know, I get to law school, I realize I don't know what I want to do. So I go to literally every lecture, every speaker, every person who's visiting, every coffee talk, everything, because I'm just trying to understand. And I find a thing, and this woman who's now uh, Lucy Dalglish, the dean of University of Maryland uh, Journalism School, gave some talk about secret dockets and how dockets and courtrooms were being sealed now, a very specific conversation. But she said one thing where she said, the economics of journalism is changing. It's not clear how journalists are supposed to get lawyers to help them do what they need to do to make this stuff out in the open in the public and not secret because lawyers cost too much money. And just sat there and thought, you know, who's really cheap? Law students. Law students are free. They're hungry for experience. What if we built a thing that, you know, law students could give this advice to journalists? And I said it to a couple of friends and four of us ended up building this thing. Now, when I was building it, did I think that I was going to do media law for my whole life? No, I just thought this is interesting today. So let me just do it. It's a question I don't know the answer to, so let's just build it. Then I, you know, went off to graduate school because I couldn't, more law school because I couldn't figure out what to do. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write this thing about this website no one's heard of called WikiLeaks. That changed. (laughs) Right. That that changed. Then I saw this, you know, fellowship of the New York Times. Okay, I'm going to apply for it. I'm going to go there. And everything was just, when I was at the Times, I started thinking about, how it's too expensive for news organizations to have helicopters like they used to. And wouldn't it be great if there are cameras in the sky that journalists could use? Oh, wait, here are these things called drones. Maybe those are good. But I guess if cops use drones, then we live in a surveillance state. How do we figure out what the law should be on here? You know, I wasn't a kid who liked Transformers. I have no deep love of robots. I just thought it was an interesting question. And I have found that every time there's an interesting question, 
my playbook is always the same. I ask people who are way smarter than me what they think in a variety of different disciplines. And I just sort of start to synthesize my own thoughts and think about what should be right and try to make something out of it and give it to other people, right? So one reason that we made Drone U was, I don't know what the right answers are in this space. There's a lot of smart people who have thoughts. So let me just synthesize that together and put it out there because someone else might find it useful. And that act of sharing, of aggregating knowledge, sharing it helps me. It's also helped me get all of Every step of the way, every job has just been because someone's like, oh, yeah, I saw this thing that you did or or this this thing that you put together. And it's always standing on the shoulders of giants that are smarter than I am to figure out the questions in front of us. And I just kind of keep hopscotching along that way. And I love that you didn't do it with intent. No. You did it with because you wanted to do it, because it was the right thing to do. It was the best thing to do. Not thinking, okay, so one day I want to work at BuzzFeed and I want to be the assistant general (laughs) counsel. So here are the 10 things I'm going to do to get there. Yeah. And one honest thing I'll say about doing stuff that way is that you can look to either side of you and see people who have a plan. They have a five-year plan. They have a 10-year plan. They know that they are going to have this job and that job statistically tends to lead to this job and then this and this, right? And the known path gives a lot of certainty, right? There's something really comfortable about saying people who do X did ABC through the alphabet beforehand and that's how how we get there. And I have tons of moments where I'm like, what is, what am I doing? (laughs) What is my next job going to be? And you just have to swallow it. There's no magic answer to how to deal with that. There's just, I like this today. I love this today. I'm throwing myself into it now. Something else may come along or maybe that thing doesn't exist yet today. Maybe the thing I'm going to do in 10 years doesn't exist today and that's okay. I definitely have friends who remind me that it's okay sometimes. I'm not, I would be lying to you if I said that I always feel totally confident in the choices, but I am lucky enough to have the history of things working out. But whenever I make a bad decision or whatever, all I think about are the great athletes and how many baskets did so-and-so not make and how many home runs did so-and-so not make, right? And they're, they're at the top of their game. And even when you're at the top of your game and you're in your zone, you're not always going to have those winning moments every single moment. It's your body of work. Whatever you are, it's your body of work. It's so true. And I think that myth of perfection, those are the shackles that so often keep women from doing what they want to do, right? It goes into waiting for perfect, waiting for almost, we're almost perfect. There's a little bit more and you just have to you're not going to be perfect. Sometimes you're not going to know. Sometimes you don't know how to get there. Sometimes it's confusing. You just have to do it anyway. And and anything that tells you you have to wait until you're perfect is just keeping you from really living. Well, you've just given me like that stamp of approval to say that it's okay, Denise, that you don't know what you're having for dinner, not only tomorrow, but you don't even know what you're having for dinner tonight. <laughs> you know I that? never do. Right, because I it'll never... be whatever fish Italy has <laughs> that looks good when I said to the fishmonger, what's the best fish you have today? <laughs> so I could go on with you forever. This was so lovely. Forever. Thank this you. This was wonderful. Thank you. And where can we find you? I am on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. It's probably the best place to find me. Otherwise, you can always email and what's your me. Twitter? My, oh, so my Twitter is uh, Nabiha Sayed. So N-A-B-I-H-A-S-Y-E-D. I'm there too often. Me too. Me too. That, that's one of the other things I have to be done with. It's like the black hole, but that's a whole nother podcast. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a whole nother- <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live every Wednesday, subscribe on iTunes and rate and review. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the things Nabiha and I talked about today. Like, are you done with waiting for things to happen? Or are you making the things happen that you want? There's a huge difference in there. We need to get done waiting. And are you getting pointy? And I say that pointy on purpose. Are you getting focused on what's really important? And here's a great reminder that there isn't just one answer to a problem. It's learning what's the right answer for you and your problem. So before we go, remember to go to podcastone.com to find all the great sponsors of Mentoring Moments. Because of them, we can bring you the show each week with limited ads. To learn more about them, go to the Killer Deals link on podcastone.com and check out the Mentoring Moments page. Also, Mentoring Moments is a participant in the Amazon Associates Program, an affiliate advertising program designed to provide a means for us to earn fees by linking to Amazon.com and affiliated sites. You can link to Amazon at podcastone.com. So please follow me, find me. I'm easy to find. I'm always on Twitter, at Denise Ristori. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Hey, this is Roxy Diaz. And this is Nina Parker. Now, we are two pop culture veterans who love nothing more than talking about the latest trending topics. Now, we're talking about everything, the relationships, music, celebrities. And maybe the banana pics I get in my DM. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. We're talking about everything. All right, now you get to join us every week on our new podcast, Little Black Dress with Roxy and Nina. Check out new episodes on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on iTunes. Guys, it's the Little Black Dress because every Every woman has one. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.